Janine, and this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Today, I am joined by a very special guest, Anthony Williams. Hi. Hello, Janine. Hello. How are you? Good. Good are we supposed here. to really be honest here, how we know one another? <laughs> yes. Yes. Go, you want to tell them? We went to high school together. That's right. She went to my sister's school. I went to King's School, and Janine went to Lohaywood Thomas. That's right. And now we merged. Well, we didn't merge. The school merged. It's King's School. Um, and you were known as Moondog. We used to all call That's you right. Moondog. Yep. That's right. Yes. And you oh. were a heck of a football player. Wow. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I did, I did what I could do. It was excellent. So mm-hmm. I was reading on your website, mindwell.ceo. And I'll go into that in a second, what that is. But Mimo.co. Sorry, Mimo.co. Yes. Um, that you had a really, this is an understatement, challenging um, experience in college. Um, but before we get to that, you grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, correct? Right. Yes. And I didn't know this about you because a lot of us weren't so open, but you had uh, foster parents. That's right. Did you know personal question you can answer or not did you know your biological parents did you know of them yes my mother was in and out of my life yeah as a as a youngster she we was born in connecticut and she took me down to mississippi and i lived with my grandparents for like my first four years and i came back to stanford i lived with my mom probably all of six months that, that i know of my life and then she was in and out you know we were daycare with the harrises so and then after i turned 16 I didn't see her for like another 27 years. And actually, I went to see her. Yeah, I went to see her when I turned 44. So that was like 27 years. And also, I met my father for the first time when I turned 44. My biological father, who I just buried uh, tomorrow, will be two weeks. Two weeks ago, I went back I'm to so Connecticut. Sorry. Yeah, no problem, no problem. So I met him like four times in my whole life. What was that like, seeing someone after 44 years? For the first time, um, it was cool. You know, it was cool. We had one of those, you know, breakfast that, breakfasts that went into like 4 o'clock. You know yes. what I'm saying? We had, yeah. you know, and catching up. And I was able to connect some dots, you know, in terms of, you know, my demeanor and my character. Because a lot of, he's, I would say he's a natural or was a natural yogi. Like, he didn't really get caught in people's dramas. He was just very straightforward, very, this is what it is, and I'm not going to argue back and forth, and so so on and so forth. And I was able to see from him, like, oh, okay, knowing who my mother was, mm-hmm. I was able to understand why he wasn't in my life. Ah. And so, you know, he, was, he did his, he crossed his T's, he dotted his I's, he was a good man, he took care of me, he sent money that my mom took and used otherwise, but that okay. didn't matter. Um, All right. And so he even took care of my sister, who was not his child. And he knew that, but he was still sending money because that's the type of man he was. By the so, way, I don't mean to laugh, but I went through my own experience with child support and money, supposedly for me, not going to me. So that's why I giggled. Yeah, yeah no, no. Hey, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, it was, it was good to uh, connect those dots. And then we met, you know, a couple of maybe three or four subsequent times. And I saw him last summer and that was the last time I saw him alive and like I said I buried him uh last two weeks ago mm. great you had to fly back in the midst of a quarantine 
Yes. Yikes. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Actually, that wasn't bad. I, I hope they keep it like this because it was it was really you know. Oh I really? Had, Only one yeah, on the plane? Yeah. yeah I was, well, you know, each there were three. There were four different flights, right? There was two going and two coming back, mm-hmm. and three out of the four, I had my own row. So oh, I was. Good. Yeah. So I was I was good. good. I could lay down. I was like, all right, this is a new type of first class. You know, nice. I could just lay out. Lay out. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't that bad. Did you start your company based on your own trauma? Uh, when you look at the root, root um, of where your trauma is, did it all start in Tufts? Yes. And I didn't know I was going to start my company. I didn't know I was going to be doing this professionally mm-hmm. at all. But I started because of that trauma. I left the country before the summer before my senior year. And I went to... Kenya. And my assignment was to build a school in Kenya. Um, and and, and Madafa is the name of the village. And that experience gave me a paradigm shift. And that began my healing journey. And that the began ultimate act of kindness. Well, you mean building the school? Yes. Taking yourself outside of your mindset and using your energy to help others. Absolutely. And, you know, um, and I must say, I got much more from the people in the village than I gave. So I built the building the school, that was the least that I could do. And I was absolutely, I mean, I got so many different stories, but one I can share with you, um, you know, I went with all of this anger, all of this rage, you know, we can back up and talk about that later, but from, from Tufts and just, you know, was at my wit's end and being in this village in Marafa, Kenya, you know, I had, I remember my first day there, one of the brothers was like, it was, it was a storybook welcoming. They were like, welcome home, my brother, you've come home. So I'm in this rural village and uh, a gentleman by the name of Akode. He came, he's like, I'm going to come get you tonight. I'm going to take you somewhere. So we're in this rural village. He comes and he gets me and we're walking, you know, under the moonlit sky. And, you know, I'm just tripping. Like, I'm in Africa. Like, I'm walking. I'm looking at the, the ground. I'm, I'm looking at everything. Like, I am, you know, this is where, it, especially in that area of the world, because, you know, Lucy, the first person um, that they, they found. So she's in that area in the Horn of Africa, right? Okay. So I'm like right where civilization began. So I'm like taking all of this in. And this person, back all day, he reaches over as we're walking and he grabs me by the hand. Now I'm like, at this, I was 21, 22. And he's a grown man. He's probably like, you know, uh, I'm going to say 30 at the time. And he's walking with me, holding my hand. And were you nervous? Were you like, oh, I'm just, ready to it, take him out? <laughs> exactly. I, that's exactly where my mind is. I know went. you. Like, yes. Yeah. I'm like, this guy's like, no. I'm like, no. You're like, no, no. Like, no, no, no. Yeah. But, but I, I didn't just jerk away. So I'm like, okay, how do I cleverly get my hand back? Yeah. And so I feigned like there was a mosquito. You know, oh, God. And I just, you know, went like that, <laughs> put my hand away. And then I just continue walking. Okay, now that that's done, let me reach out and grab your hand again. And so he grabs my hand again. And so now I'm I'm talking to myself. I'm like, okay, you're not gay. 
Okay, so I'm not gonna let anybody kiss me. No one's gonna penetrate me. Right. So I'm just, I'm just reassuring I'm myself, like, okay, yeah. I'm gonna kind of just relax with this and go with this. Mm-hmm. And so we got to our final destination, which is kind of this place that they call the canteen. And it's where like the, the village men would hang out and like drink a little beer. They had a ping pong table there and they would just come together. And you just, all of these brothers, all of these men in the village, and you just see them, I'm watching, looking at these men and they're hugging each other. Aww. They're holding hands. They're like looking into, into each other's eyes, like really loving each other. And so this went on for like, you know, the next week mm-hmm. and two weeks and the whole time I was in the village. But within two weeks, of that, my heart busted open. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized, it was like, wow, this is the first time in your life that you have been unconditionally loved yeah. by other men. Mm-hmm. And it scared me. Yeah. And so, cause I'm thinking this, and, they, and when I told them about homosexuality, not, they didn't even understand that. They're like, oh no. So it wasn't even about that, it was about just, loving you we never grow out of loving you and so that began my transformation and I was like wow Mm -hmm. and I actually I felt that all throughout my body I felt that from my heart chakra everything opened up and I couldn't wait for my brothers to come get me and hold hands as a grown I turned 22 in that village but that really began my my journey and my transformation and my paradigm shift so there was, there's a source of, um, of misery that comes with that. So when I came back to America from that first time, that's when I had my first big culture shock because I'm coming from being loved like that to being around. I remember I went to a party in New York and it was my fraternities. It was mostly black people. And I was like, wow, I'm around a bunch of black men. And I was, I was scared. And I put my back against the wall at this party. And I'm like, wow, I'm around a bunch of black men and I don't feel safe. Why didn't you feel safe? Because, you know, there, the way we are, our socialization in America, you know, this whole black on black crime thing, you know, that has a a psychosis all in it, in in and of itself. But the fact that you know, I could be dancing with somebody's girl. Like I ask her to dance or I step on someone's foot and people get mad. And that, that springs into like people wanting to fight. Right. People actually losing their lives because you stepped on someone's shoe mm-hmm. or because you talked to someone's girl. So even though I was around black men, I wasn't around that mentality of like my brother, like I truly right. love you. And like when I told the brothers in Africa about, you know, you could be in a city and see hundreds of people and no one say hi to you. No one greet you. They said, ah, my brother, you're joking now. Ah, he's joking now. They could not fathom that you would see a person and not greet that person up and down. So that's what I was coming back from like two and a half months of experiencing that. So when I came back to America, it was not that. So there's a way that I have to walk in the hood, as a brother, right. I, there's a way I have to carry myself. Like I have to let people know, like, no, I'm not the one you want to jump on. Mm-hmm. But if I, you know, were to, you know, just walk like I was walking in the village there, you know, I would be prey. So yeah, yeah that's that's what we've lost over here in America, yeah, and have. that's what we have over there in Africa. So 
That Did you want to run back? Did you want to just leave New York and just go back? Yes. And so by when I came back and I finished that last year at Tufts, and so the idea was I'm coming back to Africa in some capacity. Um, I don't know what capacity. I know there's a village there in Africa where I know the brothers and sisters love me. They will receive me. All I have to do is show up. So mm -hmm. that was my, I left that village with, with that intention to right. return to Africa in some capacity. And so I moved to DC and I landed a great job that, you know, actually sent me back to Africa. And I worked in, in, in grassroots development for many years at AfriCare. Quick question. I read in your bio, you met a man that was 105. Yes. Could you talk about him? Absolutely. So when I came back, so I, I got a job fast where I graduated, moved to D.C., um, got finally ended up with a job I probably should have never gotten um, at AfriCare. So AfriCare does grassroots development work all in about, you know, at that time, maybe 35 countries in Africa. And I went in and sold myself. I was like, hey, I know I don't have the credentials you need. I have like, you know, two and a half months of experience of in Africa on the ground, but I'm like, hey, I'm tenacious and I, I can do this job. So long story short, I got the job. I worked at the headquarters for about a good year and a half and jobs are like, okay, you've done a good job here at the headquarters. You're ready to go to the field to sign a, a longer term contract on the continent. And one job came to like, wow, we would give you this job, but you don't speak French. I'm like, oh man, okay. Then another three months went by, another job came up. They were like, oh, you could have this job, but you don't speak French. Uh. So they said that to me too many times, uh, too much. And I took a leave of absence, went to France, the south of France, Ville-Franc-Sumer, and I went to this French school, stayed there, studied at the school for a month and stayed for two extra months. So I came back with a French conversation to get a job to go to Niger. Three months? That. It just took you three months? Three months, three months to have a, a decent conversation. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm submerging myself in this. And so they were like, okay, you, it's going to be tougher for you because you, and the job is in French. So I thought, and so I, I went, you know, signed this contract, showed up in my village in Gure. And so, you know, Abdukrim Hassan, it was an elder in the village. Now, so he was 105 when I met him. And I will say I've met in that two and a half years, in that three years of actually being in, in the, the desert, I met at least five people over 100 years old. Whoa. Living out in the village, living in the sticks. In fact, the village got electricity six months, six years after I left. Six okay. years after you left. Six years after I left, the village got electricity. So I lived in a mud hut. I was able to sit with this elder in the village and uh, he was a Sufi monk and he taught me how to sit down, how to be quiet, how to breathe, how to meditate, how to center. Mm. And so we've talked more than he's talked to me in two and a half years. His thing was about just be silent. Mm -hmm. Be silent. Don't slowly, slowly, don't rush to get there because you'll arrive late. So he's someone that I consider my, my foundational teacher. Mm 
-hmm. he wouldn't say he was a teacher. He would just say he's an elder in the village. Yeah. But he's I'm the wrong. one that taught me how to breathe, how to sit, how to meditate. And within three months of me being in that village, all of the symptoms of stress that I had in my body literally lifted off of me. Mm. So I know by empirically. So when I'm working with people now, I understand empirically, okay, you need to get these things right. You need to get your breath right. You need to get your thoughts right. You need to get your movements right. And, you know, from that point, I added many other things. Like when I went to Japan, I studied more about the body and shiatsu and shidoen and karate. But the foundation was sitting. Yeah. In fact, the, the verb for to uh, live in Hausa. So when I went to the Hausa land in the village I was in, they actually speak Hausa, one of the 14 languages of the country. Never even right? heard of that. Hausa. Okay. Hausa. So you've heard of Swahili, right? Yes, I have. Swahili is to East Africa as Hausa is to West Africa. Okay. So it's the lingua franca of West Africa, about seven different countries, you know, speak Hausa. In the house of people were the merchants. So they went around so doing their business. So you spoke Hausa. So, you know, um, I lost my train of thought. But be, being in this village with this man, learning how to uh, speak Hausa, speak French. I was going to tell you something. Where was I going with that? Um, you were telling me the different languages, how you, you, you had to pass up different opportunities, but then you realized you would learn languages. You talked about France, uh -huh. talked about uh, the gentleman who's 105. I forget his name. Right. But I was telling you something about that with, uh, with the language. We'll, 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 it'll, okay. it'll come to me. You'll just blurt yeah. it out wherever you want. Yeah. <laughs> but just, uh, again, him being the foundation of, um, of my practice. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about your current practice. So my current practice is a culmination and an amalgamation of starting with that, that first trip to Kenya. And then I basically, when I graduated, I, I left America for like almost 10 years. Right. Mm -hmm. So from 88, pretty much from 88 to, you know, 98, 99, I was out of, America, with the exception of coming back and finishing that school year, and I went back right back out. So I, I was on the continent for uh, four and a half years, altogether like four and a half years. And then I, then I was in Asia for like four years altogether, spent some time in Europe, this and that. So a good 10-year block, I left the country. And each country that I went to, so when I left Africa, when I left the continent of Africa, I went to Asia. And I lived in Japan for three years. And so when in Japan, mm -hmm. I studied Japanese. I studied, you know, uh, Kyokushinkai Karate. I studied Sado, which is like their tea ceremony, which is their mindfulness. I mm -hmm. studied Shiatsu. I studied all of these different things. So now I'm adding with the meditation, now understanding the body. Mm -hmm. How do you break the body down when I'm fighting? But how do I heal the body when I'm doing pressure point work? Yes. Breathing, movement, all of these things. So uh, long answer for my practice now is a, an amalgamation, a synthesis, a culmination of all of those that travel and studying and living in places where they have the, the best practices for longevity. Mm -hmm. So that is the, the foundation of my practice. 
and it looks it can look different every day uh it is different depending on who i work with you know so i work with people that are you know incarcerated incarcerated youth and adults you know going to the jails and prisons then i work with you know high performing ceos i work with professional athletes i work with you know social workers i work with you know um youth at risk all of that so it mm-hmm. looks different depending on who i'm working with mm-hmm. and how i how i unroll it to them so basically the practice is i think any good teacher is able to really meet the student where they are yes you know what i'm saying so whatever yes. door whatever door a student gives me i go through that door the door may be physical I may be able to really give them a strong asana based practice and break them down and then, you know, attack their ego. Then they're like, oh my God, like, you know, I bench 450 pounds, but I can't hold chaturanga for a minute. Right. Then you sort of think like, okay, what is this about? So it's not about brawn. It's not about yeah. power. It's, it's probably what's up here. Power. What's going on. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so then that, that pulls that person in. And then, you know, I may be able to have a conversation with someone. I may be able to teach a breathing technique to someone. So for myself and who I work with, the practice kind of looks different every day, but it's really all the same because it mm-hmm. all comes back. It comes back to the true meaning of yoga. Yes. And the true meaning of yoga is that yoke. It's the coming together of the mind, the body, the emotions, the mentality, all coming together. And when all those things come together, that's when we have yoga. That's when we have that ease, right? And so when we are not together, that's when we have that's dis-ease, sure. right? Yeah, so that's what, if that, if that helps at all, that's what my practice, I'll flow, like I'll flow a little bit, I'll hang upside down, I'll go for walks, I'll do this, karate, moving, sado, washing dishes, this and that, but everything is very intentional based on that breath, the thinking, the movement. I like that. So I want to address what's going on now and your perception of everything since the death of George Floyd. Um, You know, I saw the sign with this little girl and the parents had written, yes, all, yes, black lives matter, but all lives matter. We're not saying that all lives don't matter. Right. And it just took sadly the death of George Floyd for people to wake up, it seems. What's your take on that? Well, I think uh, I think Will Smith said racism is not new; it's just being filmed. And so, what Boom. we're talking, yeah, it's yeah. just being filmed, you know. Yeah. And what we're talking about today is what sent me out of this country over thirty-one years ago. Right. It's the same conversation. It's the same thing. It's, you know, what I felt at Tufts University was I had to justify my right to exist. My humanity was challenged and questioned on a daily basis. People were telling me in an intellectual way and also in a very harsh, unabashed way, your life does not matter. Disgusting. And so I, you know, I was surrounded by cops on campus at on Tufts University's campus, the center of campus. It was the showdown. 
me against the policeman. What? And so that, yes, that could, I could have easily have gotten shot that night. And luckily there was one cop that didn't exist with George Floyd that said, Hey, stop. This is enough. He's a student here. And he told all of the other cops to stand down. Never, those two words saved my life. He said, wait, stand wait, what down. Happened? What happened to you? What happened to me was I was an outspoken black man on campus. Okay. And so it was a, it was a four year or three year buildup. And so cops were this and that. And that, as I got more and more enraged, I was more and more vocal. I was mm-hmm. more and more like, no, you will not stop and ask me for ID. I'm a student here. I don't have to justify myself again and again while I'm paying thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. You're asking me to do what you're not asking other people to do. That's unacceptable. So I wasn't the person that was just going to smile and take it. So then that, then I became uppity. Yeah, you become uppity. So I was the the uppity guy. So this was a a night where a, uh, a officer came in. It was a black officer. So he, so sometimes the black officers are worse than the white ones. We call them showing off for the white cops. Interesting. So he came in and disrespected, you know, this, the only other black kid at this party. And he went, he was a freshman. He went up to him and said, hey, soul brother number one, time to go in front of everyone. So he totally dehumanized, degraded this young uh, black boy at this party. So I was there and I went up to the kid and I said, don't ever let anyone speak to you like that. You belong here. Good. You pay to be here. Right. And so he didn't like that. So now he's like, hey, hey. So now the cop was like trying to come at me. And I told him immediately, get out of my face. Like, I, you're not going to scare me. Right. And so it went from there. And so that was the night where it all came to a head. I had, you know, run-ins with this guy before. And oh, so he did. followed me to like three other parties. And I told him, I said, you're, you're not going to do anything to me. You alone will not do anything to me. So I even told him, you better call for backup. You need backup to deal with me. And so he got, he got. He felt threatened to call backup. Even with your your gun, you need backup. You need something because I'm not, you're not going to take me, period. It's not going to happen. And this guy was trying to like sneak cuffs on me and all this. I was like, get out, get out of here. Stop playing with me. And so he followed me to like three different parties. And then it came to a head in the center of camp. He had all his, he had his gang. Yes. Yes. He had his gang and then they yeah. came out and like one of the cops saw like, oh, I, this kid's, a, he's a student here. He's not some thug. This and that. You may not like him. And, he, and they, this guy was trying to put cuffs on me. Cops were there. But you hadn't done anything. Yeah. I, I, I existed. You existed. That's the crime. So we, that's, what, that's what people have to understand. There is a different police force. So for what the average white man would not take. You see, like, why guy would cuss the cops out? White women cuss the cops out. Like, I'm not doing this, da, da, da. We, this is, is completely different for us. Mm-hmm. So we have to go through, we have to, you know, why are you in this neighborhood? Why, you know, even on Barclay Drive, I was coming home and I don't know if you've ever taken the bus there, but there's a little uh, trail that comes from the back and you go up through the woods to get okay. to my house All right. on Barclay Drive. And one time I was, I was coming home from college or something and I uh, came up through the woods, this and that, and didn't have my key. And so I'm just sitting there. I'm like, I'm waiting for, you know, my mom, Miss Watkins to come home. Cops came down Barclay Drive. Somebody called because they saw you. And they came up on me and they said, 
uh, you know, what are you doing here? That I'm like, I live. There's like, well, we got to, I said, what's, what's the problem? They go, they're like, well, we got a call that a suspicious person was in the neighborhood. And I was like, what does the suspicious look like? <laughs> right. So good, this, this, good is, point. this is, yeah. So yeah. this is, this is how we live. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Hi, I'm Janine, and this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Today, I am joined by Anthony Williams. What we're seeing now is not new to black folks. Right. We know this. We've been telling this story. What's happening is white folks are starting to see this. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they're like, oh, oh, my God. Like, maybe what my friend was telling me for the last 31 years is right. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we get that, you know, create some critical mass where people start to wake up and listen to their friends of color particularly yes. black people. It's like, I'm, I'm telling you, it's like, you know, and anyway. Does no, that not anyway. This is all good. No, no. Yeah. no. This, so, is, this is good. I like so, your perspective. And so, you know, I have, um, I'm the black guy in the yoga community. Mm-hmm. I've been in the yoga community for, for many, many, many years, many decades. And Again, that community is really about, it's, it's, it's their privilege. I call it the uh, we the people. So, you know, in our constitution, you know, the, the, dec- the, the preamble, we the people in order to form a more perfect union has created da 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 Those are beautiful words. But slavery was a time-honored system. The 16 men that framed that, they had slaves. Mm-hmm. They were not talking about black people. Right. Right. So that that conversation is only intelligible amongst white men that think like that. So not even black men, they excluded women, they excluded the Indians. So it makes sense only to them. Mm -hmm. So I liken that to the yoga community, the yoga community and the mindfulness community. It only makes sense in a group full of white people. Like we're talking about love. But what how does that look when you have to insert people of color when you have to insert a black man in the studio and like, okay, well, I'm going to speak like, well, no, I'm not three fifths. And so that's when the white fragility comes in. Mm -hmm. That's when the upheaval comes in. That's when the cops follow you. It's like, no, no, I'm not coming in your yoga studio to make you feel comfortable about the things that you're not doing. Right. You Mm -hmm. are actually gentrifying this community and you're not even saying anything about it. And if any black person came in the studio, you would call the cops. I've had people be completely frightened. When the first time I went, you know, I can go in, you know, the, the names of studios and the name of great, you know, retreat centers that I've been in as a black man. And I'm like, people are like, why are you here? What's going on? Yeah, these are the holy rollers. These are yeah. the spiritual people. So I have a person, she's, she's a yoga instructor. We met years ago, this and that. And, you know, she's the typical blonde hair, blue eyes, very thin, this and that. So she looks like when people think of yoga, that's what they think of. But so, but again, it's become whitewashed. So that's what yoga has become. But anyway, so, and she considers herself a friend. She's, she considers herself wanting to do this work, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And now because of this George Floyd thing, again, 
she told me, you know, she, she, she voted for Trump. Uh. I'm like, okay. She said, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm open to a cogent argument. If there's something that I don't see, please explain it to me. So you're saying that you are a yogi and you're about all about equality and He's humanity. Yeah. So what am I not, what am I not seeing about Donald Trump? Because mm -hmm. I see nothing but racism, exactly. sexism. Yes. He's a demagogue. So, uh, but, but if you can present some information that, that I don't know about, I'm open. I want to be open. I want to understand. Right. So, you know, of course she hasn't been able to present that. And so now it's back and forth and, you know, with her, mm. you know, I came back and she's like, how do you, what do you, what about the, the rioters and looters? And I, this is after me burying my father. And oh. I was like, yeah. Oh. yeah. So I'm just like, and I, I, I told her, I said, well, you know, I don't really want to go into this right no. now because I'm dealing emotionally and mentally with, yes. you know, the, the, my father and then also George Floyd. It's just too much for me right now to, to carry you. Mm -hmm. I can't carry you if you can't see the obvious. Yes. And so, but it's still, I was sending her little posts of things that I was, that I would, you know, see mm -hmm. where other people like James Baldwin and, and other educated scholars were talking, were basically answering her questions. So I was like, see, hear this from someone else. Hear this from yes. someone yes. else. Hear this from someone else. And then, you know, it, it got into, um, and I said, you need to, at this point in your life, and I'm sure with your views, you white folks, our white brothers and sisters, you have to go deeper. Yes. Right. You, this is, this is you looking at this black man being murdered in real time, mm -hmm. you know, over nine minutes where, uh, the white man, Mr. Chauvin had his knee casually right. on this man's neck while mm -hmm. three other men have their knees on him too, while with his hands in his pocket, yep. looking into the camera with impunity. Yes, saying mama, saying mama, yeah. I'm gonna die, I can't breathe, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not talking about him, I'm talking about the cop. Right, I Mr. know. Chauvin, looking into the camera like, this is no big deal. I've done this before. And you, if you know his history, mm -hmm. it, it all makes sense. So he was just like, so my question to, to my white brothers and sisters, when you see that, you have to ask yourself, who am I? Right. Who, who am I? If I were to go down the street and I were to see, you know, some man uh -huh. beating the crap out of a woman and I'm there, what am I, who am I? Am, am I going to just watch that? I wouldn't. Am I going to walk away from that? Not me. Right. So no that's, no, I have to step up and say, hey, this is unacceptable. And so, you know, that's what we have to do. And, right. You know, people looting or he had a $20 bill. Let's just say, let's just say he had, he was kind of counterfeit. He had a whole bunch of money. Let's say he just robbed a bank. He did all of this. He did all of these terrible things. Mm -hmm. Let's just say that. Let's just go with that argument. Okay. So does that mean he gets murdered? No. In the Well, that's, a, that's what, what this narrative is trying to do because we have black folks, people of color, non-white people have been, what, Ma what Martin Luther King says, thingified. 
we've been dehumanized to the point where, oh, we can say, well, you know, he had a, a counterfeit. Come find out that it wasn't true. That's he had right, a counterfeit yeah. $20 bill. And in some people's minds, that resolves the cognitive dissonance of what you just saw. It you doesn't justify it by any means. It does, no, but, but that's how, but that's how this world, that's how this racist society thinks. Everything in this society is designed so that the status quo feels good about what they're doing, mm-hmm. right? So, right. you know, you don't kill Indians that brought you in, got you through that winter, fed you, took you in, you don't kill people like that, do that for you. Right. But if we can rewrite the history and say that they're savage, savages, they've done this and it. So now, you know, written it into the Declaration of Independence. They, they, they call the Indians merciless, savage savages. Indians. Yeah. You can yeah. kill savages. So that's what's going, that's what's happening in the society. So we have to really come to understand in this society in this country racism is like the coronavirus yeah it is there it is affecting everyone yes white and black so with me growing up and going to, to king school and me wearing turtlenecks in the, the summer of my sophomore year so i don't get black out in the sun because of my deep self-hatred i have to mm. I, I can say that now but i have to that is me internalizing racism that is wait you were a turtleneck in the heat of the summer the heat of the summer baby wow and i can say that and i can smile about it because that was my uh my evolution right that was my evolution Mm -hmm. so i had to look at myself and i had to i remember uh, a black guy in college when i was going through my rage and i was fighting against the machine and status quo and he's he this brother looked at me says well haven't you ever wanted to be white? And I almost punched him in his face. Yeah. I was like, hell no, I want to be white. Right. That was my anger speaking. Right. And then that, what he, he asked me that question, it, it just was in my head months, years later. And I sat and I got quiet with that. And I said, but of course. And I mm-hmm. look at me growing up and, you know, putting the aluminum foil on my teeth because all my white friends had braces. Me putting the towel on my hair to have long. That was me, mm-hmm. right? Because that was me internalizing this racism. Yeah. On the flip side of that, whites have to understand, status quo has to understand, you, whether you're conscious of it or not, you take on this superior, this white supremacy complex. And you have to realize like, oh, I have been brainwashed to believe that I'm better. Right. Just as black folks have been brainwashed to believe that they're less. So I say that it's like the corona. we're all infected. So we need to ask the question, how infected are we? So I'm, I, this, so my transformation is me going through and dealing with all of my infection, my internalization of racism and me learning how to love myself and me learning how to love others. And so yeah, that, that's where we are now. People have to ask that question. When you look at that, that image, mm-hmm. who are you? And so, you know, are you justifying? So the $20 argument, whatever the argument may be, 
So who are, who are you? Are you justifying this? Am I justifying watching a woman get the crap beat out of her? And then can I stand there and say that I'm a man? Can I go and say, hey, what, what's going on? At least say, hey, stop this, man. What, what's, what's happening here? Right. This cannot happen. In fact, I was in a situation like that. I was in Japan, long story short. Um, I was with these folks that I had just met. It was actually some black folks. And this one guy, we were in this club and he did something and we're having a good time. And he, he punched this black girl that he was with. And I kind of saw it out of the corner of my eye. And I was just like, and she just kind of just like nothing had happened. And, and I was just like, and I, I was uncomfortable. And I was like, okay. And I looked up and I looked at her, like, how was she reacting? And she just kind of like took it like, kind of like it was normal almost. And so I'm like, okay, that doesn't, doesn't look good to me. Right. And I'm trying to hold back. Then about 15 minutes later, he does this whole elaborate thing. He rolls across the floor and he gets up and he kicks the shit out of her. <gasps> Yeah. And so then I went up to him and I said, Hey man, you know, what's going on? And he go, Oh no, no, go. We, we play like that. We do that. And I was like, Hey, I don't, I don't know what you do at home. I don't know what roles you play this and that. I said, but, and he's like trying to, you know, just brush it on the rug. And I just said, Hey, I said, and I, just talking to him. Then I, just, I realized like, and I said, no, I said, I don't know what you guys do, but if you hit her in front of me again, you have a problem with me. It's not about her anymore. Right. I can't see that happen in front of me. So right. if you do that at home, do that at home. Mm-hmm. But it can't happen in front of me. So I had to decide who I am vis-a-vis this. Yes. So everybody, especially white folks, have to decide who are you in this, in this society when this is happening? And so this person that wants to go tit for tat with me, this white uh, yoga teacher, blonde hair, blue eyes. Well, my, my thing is this, no matter what your argument is, I can't come into your neighborhood and be safe. Are you okay with that? I can't walk down the street in your neighborhood. In fact, about a couple of blocks from where you live in out here in California, out mm-hmm. here in Marin County, mm-hmm. there was a black family that I was working with and the mother, so she has two black boys. So then she lives out there and, you know, there's no black folks around. She had to, or she did, she got, did a preemptive strike on the police department in San Anselmo. Really? She took her sons to the police station. Mm-hmm. And she said, let me introduce you to my sons. We live in this community. We belong in this community. So you don't have to stop them. You don't have to ask any questions. Mm -hmm. Here they are right here. Meet them. Wow. So you have to think, do you have to do that? Right. I would. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? So forget all the other arguments that. that. Yeah. So I say to anyone that is my friend, forget all of these arguments. Mm -hmm. I'm not safe in your neighborhood. I can't walk in your name. Are you okay with that? So I wouldn't that, be okay with that. Huh? I, I, would, I would be terrible with that. I mean, I was thinking how I, what I would have done if I had seen George Floyd on the ground with his knee, with the, with the officer's knee to his neck saying, I can't breathe. I'm not a bystander in life. I'm not passive. I don't think 
like the people that just sit back and watch and they, they're afraid and they don't want to make, I, I didn't grow up like that. I, as I mentioned, I grew up in New York and seeing accidents, seeing people get hurt, we would just run, my mother and I, what can we do? What can we, and so I have this mentality of whoever it is, go and help. So I don't understand the, oh no, I, this looks like trouble. I, I don't get that. Yeah, you know, and, and, and as a white woman, as a white woman, I have another friend here, and she's just like, you know, she thinks she's more involved than she is, but she said, yeah, she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm doing. And she said, yeah, you know, I helped a brother out the other day. I said, well, what did you do? She said, he was, you know, I saw him, he was stopped by, by the cops, and I helped him out. I'm like, well, what, what did you mean? do? What mean? What could she do? She said she stopped her car. Mm-hmm. She got out. She went up to the offer and just said, officer, I'm just here watching. I just want to make sure everything is above ground. Da, 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 da. And I was like, that's great. Because you doing that and you stand, you could have saved that brother's life. Right? Because now this person has to be different in front of you. So and when you look at these videos of white women cursing the cops out, use that privilege so a white woman like that could have went in and said, stop it. Mm-hmm. Stop it right now. Get your, your knee off of his neck, da 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 da. And they're not going to treat that white woman like they treat that black man. So, that a white woman wielding her, her white privilege, that's how you can wield your white privilege. And you well, step that- in and say, whenever I see the cops, and if it's a person of color, I'm stopping my car, I'm getting out, and I'm just being, because you have the right to do this. This is my right officer. I want to make sure, has this man done something? Okay, well, if he's done something, then you arrest him the right way. You don't have to hold him down. He's already, you can do that. Mm-hmm. That's so, you know, take that white privilege. Use that white privilege. You know, I just saw something the other day with uh, Marilyn Monroe. She was in Las Vegas, you know, and... Um, something, uh, was it Sarah Vaughn, Sarah Vaughn, you know, the okay. great singer Sarah Vaughn, yes. right? Yes, oh, yeah. And so um, they wouldn't let Sarah Vaughn, before she was Sarah Vaughn, sing at this club. I think it was in Las Vegas somewhere. I'll send you the, the link. Okay. And Marilyn Monroe said, if you let Sarah Vaughn sing in this club, I'll be here every night. Wow. That, that started Sarah Vaughn's career. Ella Fitzgerald, or Ella Fitzgerald, that started her career. Yeah. That a white woman, mm-hmm. Marilyn Monroe, you don't get any whiter than that. Right. She's coming in, she's like, hey, right. I know I'm, I'm the sh- Right. If you want me in your club every night, yep. Ella sings here every night. Yeah. When she I wants like to. that. Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. did the same Sammy Davis Jr. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not, they're not coming in the back. That's great. I I'm didn't know that. Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. You, my man comes in the front. Yeah. Joe Namath. He when did the too. Was segregated. Yeah. The Joe Namath. He's like, mm-hmm. hey, blah, blah, blah. They were like the, the white, the black. He's just like, hey, we can't win like that. Yeah. So y'all got to figure that out. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm coming here to win. These are my, my teammates. So right. y'all got to figure that out. And because he's Joe Namath, they figured that shit out. Amazing. So that's what I want. You have the power. You can go and say, hey, you know what? We're not patronizing, patronizing this place. We're not coming in. We're not doing it. Mm-hmm. One person. One person. Yeah. Alan Monroe's like, hey, you know what? You want me to come to your establishment? Let my girl sing here. You bet. So here's my question. How do you think we could do better, white people? How can we be more compassionate and caring and wake up and 
and help. I think, you know, and what I just said, like, you know, first of all is that empathy. Yeah. When you look at that, because people, again, they'll have this argument. Well, he had this. Well, let me let me ask this. So to any white man, one of my white friends, male friends that's talking to me, then I will ask the question. Well, OK, let's just say he had a counterfeit bill. OK, let me ask the question. When is it OK for me to put my knee on your daughter's neck mm-hmm. till she expires? What has she done? Oh, hey, she had she had a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. So, well, of course, now that raises your hairs. Of course. So that's that's empathy. Mm-hmm. When you see that, well, how would I want to be treated? It's yeah. real simple. How would I want to be treated? Mm-hmm. How would I want my sister to be treated? So when I see that man kick that woman, I'm like, that could be my sister. Yes. You know, and knowing I'm not going to, if I see you, I'm not going to let somebody come up and like, and if you were the dude that's beating you up, I'm going to talk to like, hey, Janine, you need to get out. First of all, let's stop this. I'm going to break this up right now. Right. And if you need help, if you need to come stay at my house until you figure it out, we can do that. You need to get away from this person. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I can't do that. I didn't yeah. call myself a man. Right. So I'm going to just say, simply said, empathy. Would you want that to happen to you? Would you want that to happen to your daughter? Mm-hmm. Would you want that to happen to your son? Yes. Ask yourself those questions. So there's no reason what you could give me where you could say, I can kill. Like if I ask you, what reason could I kill your do- one of your daughters? I present the question to you. Right. What reason could you None. give me that could kill no. one of your daughters? No reason. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So then the people that are having these arguments... Right. So when you when you let's just say, you, for example, just hypothetically here. Yeah. So when you find yourself, someone say he had this, he had that. Ask yourself, go back to respect. Well, what reason could I give? Would it be OK for this person to kill my daughter or if I had a son or my husband? OK, he robbed a bank. OK, arrest him. What about mm-hmm. that? What about arrest him? Sure. And then you go to trial. Da, da, da. That's what you're there for. Yes, you do. do that. Yeah. But to say that you're going to, and that's where we are in this society. We're so far gone that we can even begin to have this argument. I know. So, yeah. So on the other side of that, you know, I have to uh, ask myself the question. I ask myself the question, like, I don't, you have to be at a certain level. You have to be at a certain level for me to even talk to you. And then if you're, you know, if you're like my freshman year roommate who was like, hey, I haven't been around black people. I might say some stupid stuff. You know, I, my parents, you know, were impressed with you because you take a shower and you brush your teeth. I know that that's wrong. We're friends to this day because he admits that. He's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm willing to learn. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to learn. But if you're like, hey, you come in with the conviction that I am subhuman, then there's no conversation. I, I'm not going to waste my time. So mm-hmm. I'm not going back and forth. There's, there's yeah. no... You know, I protect myself. I'm not having that conversation yeah. because some people, because what has to happen is, um, again, in answering your question, you got to get uncomfortable. Yeah. White folks that want change and transformation, you have to get uncomfortable because for those that have experienced privilege, equality seems like oppression. Mm-hmm. If you've experienced privilege your whole life, and now when I come and say equality, 
Equality, not giving black people more. Right. Equality. Equal. That's going to seem like, that's going to seem like, um, what did I say? Oppression. Oppression. Yeah. And that's going to make you uncomfortable. You got to get uncomfortable. If you're not getting uncomfortable, and I told my friend that, you know, I said, you're probably going to get uncomfortable. If you do, then that means you're doing the work. You're starting to do the work. Yeah. There's a lot of work to be done. It's a lot of work to be done. You know, that, that, you know, helps to answer your question. But, you know, treating people, I mean, go back, go back to the, the, the Ten Commandments. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We don't need yeah. any other commandments. That's it. That's the one. Right. Right. It's Where can simple. people find out more about you? Uh, you can go to my website, which is mindwell, mindwell, one word, dot C-O. Okay. Um, you can go there. Then you can go um, mindwell healing. My Instagram handle is mindwell healing. You can go there. So that's a good place to, uh, to start. Excellent. Well, Anthony, we have to wrap it up, but this has been great. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's good to see you and good to see you on this platform. Um, yeah. You too. And, and I, I want to do something with, with the French and the guitar. Yes. Right? French in high school, and I'm really sorry that I ended up giving it up because I really enjoyed it. So do I have to go to France for three months? <laughs> Okay. You might you might have to do that. You might that have to be do terrible. from 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 you know Paris from somewhere in France. Imagine that. Fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Life is just rough when I have to do my broadcast from France. I know. That's a good <laughs> excuse, isn't it? It's a very good excuse. Au revoir. Au revoir. Ça fait la prochaine. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. 